0: This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers.
1: accent I hear no, is that New, Zealand. New Zealand. Oh, That's much uh, <laughs> totally different and much better I must say uh, you, know, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you may hear the uh, the Blue Angels which is our uh, gigantic and wonderful Air Force which is uh, demonstrating their power to strike anywhere at any time uh, overhead at the moment. Um, obviously as developers is... of revolutionary software we're always a little little worried that uh, you know we'll get droned but uh, hasn't happened yet. Um, but if what, you hear what, loud booms in the background, it's probably not an airstrike. It's just... Uh, what, what
2: Curtis is trying to say is that there's like an air show that happens yearly in San Francisco, and annoyingly, uh, they practice for it uh, today. Kind of cool, uh, though, I'm, right? Like massive jets. Yes. Massive
1: jets. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, an air show under you know, over a you know highly populated city. I mean, what
2: could go wrong, right? Um, so... <laughs> they know what they're doing. They yeah. fly under the Golden Gate Bridge, so, you know. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, actually, they don't do that anymore, but they used to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> At least they don't fly between the cables. Uh, you've got to turn the plane uh, sideways. That's quite a delicate thing. But um, um, all right. Uh, so you're the um, um, you're the editor of the uh, Ether Review, which as a podcast, as I understand it.
0: Yeah, well, i editor editor producer, single person who makes it kind of thing. Um, I also work for Consensus, which is a blockchain uh, blockchain company.
2: Yeah, yes, yeah, we yes. know Consensus. We, well. we know Consensus pretty well. Awesome. So, yeah. It's funny that wait, so who we connected you basically just emailed me, but I, I thought I figured that someone at Consensus would have uh told you who to get in touch with or something. I mean there are a bunch of people we talked to at Consensus, but uh, that it's good to know that maybe you just found out about Urbit. That's good. I did, yeah.
0: Well I was I heard the I heard it around the office just in other people's conversations. I hadn't heard anything about Urbit. But in just general research, I looked it up and I saw that you guys had what looked to me at least something quite interesting. You know, I mean, I'm not a technical person, but I saw the kind of buzzwords that I'm interested in, like uh, like functional language, stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you know, math based operating system. Yeah, that's all true. That's all true. Yeah. Um, And um,
1: I guess my first question is, how long are we recording for here? Um, As long as it's convenient for you. So yeah, let's. Uh, you know, I'd be. Uh, you know, you can you can lead this uh, wherever you want it to go. Um, I'm. Um, we should introduce ourselves. I'm. Um, Wait, let the man run it. Here. Yeah, yeah. Hey, go ahead, man. You're, yeah, you're, in you're, in you're you're in charge. You're the captain now.
0: I, my toes are pretty sore, man. I got to be honest. Um, so, how about you guys introduce yourselves?
1: <laughs> All right. Go ahead. Well, I'm Curtis Yarvin, uh, original developer of uh, Urbit and uh, CTO of our uh, corporate vehicle uh, Kalan. Um, and sitting
2: next to me is? I'm, I'm Galen Wolf-Pauly. Um, I'm the CEO of Tlon and uh, the sort of like the product um, energy behind this project. So how do you spell that? Tlon is spelled T-L-O-N. Mm-hmm. And it's an, it's a name that I wish we didn't have to use. You should really just think of it as urbit. Uh, exactly. Yes, it's from Borges, uh, you know, but uh, we're already weird enough, you know, without
1: bringing Borges into the uh, into the picture. <laughs> Basically, uh,
2: Urbit's open source, um, and, it's, and it's not all owned by Tlon, so we keep the company separate from the project.
0: And so Tlon is the consulting business that you hope to spin out of this? Is that, is that kind of to, to take a stab?
2: So Talon owns like a majority of the, of the Orbit um, namespace that we'll, I'm sure we'll get into at some point. Um, and, and then we'll likely like, yeah, provide supporting services and so on and so forth as Orbit matures.
1: So, you know, one of the things that's a, that's a different, that's a big difference between, uh, URBIT and these, uh, blockchain systems, Orbit is not a, uh, not a blockchain and, um, uh, you know, it's really federated rather than sort of decentralized in the, um, the Ethereum sense, uh, you know, one of the results of that is that um, probably for most people when Erbit uh, takes over the world, um, the uh, in a benign sense, of course, you're going to have someone else hosting your Erbit and uh, we'd like to be that someone else. So, you know, from the perspective of, of an ordinary user, you know, using Erbit as basically a social network shouldn't feel hugely different from, you know, your Facebook profile Um or, you know, an account on any of these social services, except that it's a general purpose computer. But, you know, when your mother uses this general purpose computer, she's not gonna be opening up the shell and like, you know, uh, fiddling around with it. And so it's essentially like you need someone to host, that's an identity that can migrate, but you need someone to host it. And uh, we certainly wouldn't mind being the people that uh, do that uh, hosting. I um, feel
0: like we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Um, Definitely are. Could you use the conceptual inventory of the layman, shall we say, to explain what exactly Erbit is and how it differs from uh, traditional solutions to whatever problem Erbit solves? Do you want to take the scale in or should I? Uh,
2: that that's, a, that's, that's very nicely put. Um, I can... I can try and take it. That's a great way of phrasing that question. Sure. (laughs) Um, I think that one of the simple ways for sort of an absolute layman to think about Urbit is basically, you know, why can't you migrate away from any of the big services that you currently use? And the answer is because when you use, say, Reddit, all of your Reddit posts and all of the Reddits that you run are stored within a custom system that Reddit has developed for their platform. And so the urbit approach is to say that what if Reddit was basically just an app that ran on top of a computer that you owned and controlled that ran in the cloud? And so the consequences of such a platform are sort of like, I'm sure we'll kind of get into it, but the idea is that you know there we think that that would be a kind of total... And sort of complete rethinking of how the cloud works for an individual, um, and it sort of starts with, hey, if you really, if you don't like the way that Reddit is moderating you, or the way that you know one of these services work, you could move your data somewhere else, or you could write a new interface for it, or you could, um, you know, you could interact with this thing the way that you interacted with your desktop in the '90s. And I'm sure yeah. Curtis has kind of yeah. Yeah.
1: Let me let me say let me say the same thing in 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 just a slightly different way which is right now as a, as a consumer using the cloud, you basically have two choices. One is that you have, um, you know, your cloud life is stored as accounts on a bunch of different servers. And these servers are basically sort of giant mainframes in the cloud in a way. So, you know, you have a Dropbox account, you have a Facebook account, you have a Twitter account. And, um, your profile or your account on any of these services is basically a row in a database in a giant mainframe. And so in you know, sort of one way to think about this kind of way of interacting with the thing is for, you know, someone who's as old as I am, I'm 43, it's like we've basically uh, reinvented AOL, except instead of a, a modem over a phone line, we're using the, the internet, but Facebook is essentially AOL. Um, and so the, um, the, the condition of basically, I mean, you're using, This sort of giant computing resource in the cloud, but your identity in this is not in any sense a computer, you know, even in an abstract virtual sense is not a computer of its own or you could go to DigitalOcean or Amazon uh, Web Services or any of these things, and you could get a Linux box in the cloud. Uh, you can do that uh, quite easily, but um, you know, the problem is that a Linux box in the cloud is essentially an industrial computer. It's not a personal computer. And so essentially we've recreated this kind of situation of like 1975 where computers exist Everybody, you know, knows, you know, if it's 1975, you're getting a computer printed bank statement, you know, that there's a computer out there somewhere in the sky. Um, But the idea that you could have your own computer in 1975 is just ridiculous. Like no one would think that like 10 years later, like, you know, half of all Americans would have their own personal computers. That was like science fiction. And if you look at the sort of the reason behind that, the reason is that, you know, once you've had this separation into... If you have something that's a personal device, it's essentially a toy. It's not a full-fledged computer. It's like a calculator, basically, in a sense. And then if you have something that's a real computer, it's a a piece of industrial machinery. Um, And so the sort of the, the, the operative question is basically, how do you kind of bridge this gap? And how do you get the power of general purpose computing kind of back in the hands of ordinary people? And so there's a lot of um, there's sort of a lot of people working on this you know, problem on the client side. They want to basically say, I, as a user, like, you know, you're seeing all these these client devices become more and more locked down. You have devices like the iPhone. that's not really completely general purpose. But the truth is that even as a user of an iPhone, that's not where that's not really the important computer in your life because that's not where the master copy of your data lives. The master copy of your data basically is going to live in a data center because we know how to create data centers that are incredibly reliable that just have no problem storing your entire life. Like nobody is worried that their Dropbox is going to lose data or their Gmail is going to lose data or something like that. But the trade off that people have right now is either you're a crazy person who thinks that they can run their own email server or something like that, or like you're a Linux system administrator, in which case, yes, you could have your own computer in the cloud, but it's for like, A very small set of people or basically you become this kind of digital surf and breaking out of that is is a really hard technical problem, ultimately, because the technical problem with why can't my grandmother just use her, uh, you know, uh, an AWS box or a digital ocean droplet um, is basically like, well, my grandmother is not a Linux system administrator. And realistically, she's not going to become a Linux system administrator. And ultimately, it comes down to the complexity of those platforms. And the complexity of those platforms is something that is basically due to, you know, these are, this is 70s software. I mean, this is Linux, Unix and the internet are are 70s things. And so that sort of creates this kind of need to basically create sort of usability through simplicity by rewriting the whole stack. And so we're like, okay, here is a sort of a user-centric reason to rewrite this stack. We know as kind of technical people that this Unix internet stack is the sort of ancient, you know, strange thing. And basically we have a technical reason to want to clean up this thing and recreate it from scratch. And we have a user-centric reason that people really want to control their own computing. And so these things kind of come together um, and that's basically uh, uh, Urbit. Do those two explanations kind of cover it at a reasonable level?
0: I think they do, yes, I think that was uh that was quite well put. The question is though how do you communicate well actually there's there's a ton of questions there. How do you communicate the value of this to the average person and further to that point, how do you deliver that uh, that value that 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 unadulterated general purpose computer
2: I think like the best example like we we have great examples of this um historically, right so if you look at the way that this problem was addressed in like the early PC era, uh, uh, it, sorry, early PC era, um, the approach was basically like, you want to capture the imagination of people who can sort of see why this is important. So basically we have a bunch of developers out there who already are you know very frustrated by this problem. They would love to be able to run their own computing. They care about owning their own data. They care about their privacy. And they think it's fun, right? Like they think it's really exciting to be in charge of their own tools. And so that kind of collective imagination is really the most powerful thing in terms of kind of building the future, basically. Right. So I don't know whether we know exactly what that future looks like, but there is this sense that a lot of people agree that this future is both possible and desirable. And so I think that Urbit as a kind of working prototype, as a working technical solution, sort of garners a lot of energy in that direction. So this, so I think for us, the main thing is basically, in very simple terms, like the main thing is basically just getting other developers who care about these problems to sort of understand the approach that we've taken and see that this thing sort of works and can be used and, in fact, can be you know independently owned and so on and so forth. Uh, I'll, I'll, as usual,
1: give my own answer, which is basically the same answer but put in different terms. Um, so if you look at um, um of,
2: you were uh, you, i think your prediction was that this is a spirited uh, a yeah. back and forth. <laughs> like, uh
1: <laughs> yes so um um you know one way to think about this problem is to say well you know as galen said let's go back and look at the rise of personal computing because it's sort of exactly the same phenomenon where you know a few sort of visionaries like in the 70s it was really this very visionary thing you had to be living in in like you know say there were like people living in Berkeley in 1973 who were like stoned all the time, who basically believed that ordinary people would, would control computers in the future. And it was just incredibly radical and weird. Um, and somehow, you know, the, you know, the stoners did not wind up, uh, controlling the computer industry, uh, fortunately, but, <laughs> um, 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 you know, they had the right idea. Um, and, and so if you look at the, um, you know, let's take uh, you know Apple, uh, you know, as an example because uh, you know, uh, Galen and I, uh, you know, I'm maybe I'm Wozniak and he's Jobs. I don't know, but if you look at basically the early, yeah, I
2: would history, never like, that's, uh, like yeah. that's like a nightmare. Uh, he, he uh, so I do get
0: a kind of, I do get a kind of, a kind of Jobsy and sense from you, Galen.
2: That's another conversation.
0: <laughs> uh, I, and,
1: so, and, and so, if you look at the early history of Apple, you're like, okay, you know, what's really the breakthrough machine for them? The breakthrough machine is the Apple II. Um, Before the Apple II comes the Apple I. And, you know, it's like before you answer the question of who buys the Mac, you have to answer the question of who buys the Apple I and who buys the Apple II. Um, And so for the Apple I, basically... um, you know the sort of the analogy, like what Galen talked about, is sort of the kind of the Apple one, uh, you know, stage of urbit. This,
2: this which, is so so Apple. I think the Apple example is actually super fraught. I don't want to totally derail you, but this this example is also totally true for for Microsoft. It's true of like Basic. Like Basic was this incredibly exciting environment for people. This is true of the early web too, right? Like it's these, true of Ethereum. I mean, you yeah, know. it's true. Like I think you just you see this repeat itself over and over. It's not like like Apple has just been sort of lying. It's like a canonical story, but it's also as an example it's it's a little it's yeah. not quite right. okay okay so so
1: with with, with that with that parenthesis inserted it's like you know so at the apple one stage um at the apple one stage you're basically like you know you're you're collecting you know the sort of the population of dreamers and you're basically saying hey come dream with us and everything sort of has to go through that stage at the apple two stage uh you know um there. uh, So, you know, I'm kind of going to go through Apple one, Apple two and Mac. So at the Apple two stage, basically, you're like, hey, wait, I can use this for something. The question of what this gets used for first by people who are, you know, sort of a little bit of a layer past the dreamers. They're still geeks, maybe, but they're very much the kind of people who bought an Apple two. It's like, you know, you buy an Apple two and you connect it to your TV. Your wife is like, why did you spend two thousand dollars on that thing? Um, and you're like, because it's a computer. Um, and your, life is, your wife is like, what? And you're like, well, I could control my garage door with it or something. And, you know, there's, there's, there's an interesting um, sort of equivalent of the modern um, um, garage door uh, in a sense, which is um, one thing I like to say is that basically what defines a form factor of computing um, in some ways is the set of IO operations that the computer can perform. So if you're a mainframe, basically, you're built to connect to a bunch of wired up, dumb terminals. And that's sort of what makes you a mainframe. And you can't really do that with an Apple II. Uh, With an Apple II, basically, you're built to connect to a TV and a keyboard or whatever. So um, what an Urbit does, basically, at the IO level, besides sort of being a social network of its own and being a secure, decentralized Facebook and Twitter, which everybody wants, uh, which is kind of super easy for us. You know, it's like everybody wants their security centralized Twitter. Well, a lot of people want it. You know, a lot of other people don't care about privacy or security. So you've got a little bit of an uphill battle there. I'm not saying we're not fighting that battle, but or not we're not going to fight that battle. What you really want is one thing you really want to see in a new platform is what can I do with this platform that I couldn't really do in any other way before? And there's an interesting kind of answer there for a kind of hacker mindset, which is, I think the IO model of basically the personal cloud computer uh, in this world is definitely web APIs, and so you know, like you already see these. Um, I don't know if they're super successful as businesses, but as sort of user things, you know, if you know if this, then that. if it's it's like an it's an API aggregator. Um, you can there are all these sort of recipes where you're like. You know, one of my send me a send me a text when my plane you know lands or something like that, and it's basically a broker for this web uh, style I/O. These APIs all come with um, kind of terms of service restrictions. So um, it's like, let's say, and, and these terms of service have these sort of weird extensions up into the sort of product category. So let's say I want to build something that's a very very simple app, which is. Um, I want to see my Twitter and my Facebook uh, social feed in in one place. Well, that, um, I believe, or at least last time I checked, uh, violates the terms of service of both Twitter and Facebook. Um, And if you want to use Twitter's, if if you're building a conventional centralized web service and you want to violate Twitter's, uh, you know, terms of service, there's really no way to do it because they'll basically turn off your API access. And so, you know, there's sort of a set of services that you can provide which basically cannibalize the value of these giant silos and um, and they have the power to shut you down. Um, but the thing is, that really only applies to operations which share the business model of Twitter and Facebook and so forth. So that basically, if you're if you're you know, producing, let's say, twitbook.com, which is going to aggregate your Twitter and Facebook feeds, um, you start Twitbook.com. You go and get your API key from Twitter and Facebook. You produce a service that everyone wants. You post it on Product Hunt. Everyone's like, "Wow, this is great!" Uh, you know, I hadn't hadn't thought of this before. And then halfway down the page, people start commenting, "Hey, this doesn't work for me," um, and it's because your API key got uh, got revoked. So that's a model that is basically sort of the consequence of doing this kind of centralized computing. Um. When you can push off the responsibility for talking to APIs to a computer that's owned and controlled by the user themselves, uh, you have a very different environment, sort of in in kind of the 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 contest between the user and the um and, and the silo in these giant services. So if basically you have an Herbit, and one of the things Herbit is very good at is using these um um. These, these web APIs, it's like you know um, your Urbit has a place to put your API keys, it has a way to manage them. You're just like, okay, I'm gonna go and get, I have an Urbit, I'm gonna go and register for my own Twitter and Facebook API keys. Really easy, three clicks. I get my, my API keys, I put them into my Urbit. My Urbit manages the secure channel for me. And then it's like basically, if I write a UI that integrates Twitter and Facebook feeds and just shows them to me, I'm basically getting my own personal data out using these APIs, which is not really what these APIs are for, then who's going to stop me? Like, who is who is who? Who is going to crack down on, like, who's going to peer over my shoulder and say, hey, you know, you know, I see this on your screen. Like, Mark Zuckerberg is not going to appear in my living room and, um, and shut me down. And so...
0: Well, the- Unless you look in the mirror and say his name three times.
2: Uh, (laughs) Yes, I I I, I had a feeling that
0: (laughs) was. It's a thing, honestly. They made a movie about it, but um, Uh, I'm so so. The thing is that's. Wait, wait. I I just want to make make the point here that it's because you you're you're approaching this from. I'm seeing I'm seeing how this can be a uh, a consumer driven thing, right? But you can write that UI, but I can then use that
2: UI. That's because right. And because so of the way that, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's worth just the, yeah, it's worth so going, the way that, the way that, I mean, the way one of the sort of fun things we kind of get for free because of the way the system works is sort of like if I'm, I'm some kid who wrote this because I thought it was fun. It's extremely easy for me to just distribute it over the Orbit network and then push live updates to it. And that could even be just that I wrote a scraper or I wrote some other like kind of like network connector that, that, you know, is a part of the the UI that you're talking about, whatever it might be. It's really easy for people to like in developing these things in synchrony to then also share their code over urban. Yeah. And, and so it's like when you look at it from the perspective of these big silos, it's
1: like, um, you know, when you want to shut down uh, twitbook.com and you're Mark Zuckerberg, you're like, take care of these guys and they get taken care of. Um, and um, when you want to shut down, you're, you're like, um, um, uh, you're, they're like, oh, Mark, we have a problem. Um, um, the problem is, you know, millions of users everywhere are using their own computers to, uh, to, to steal their own data from us. What do you mean steal their own uh, data? Yeah,
0: it's our data. It's not their data. It's our data. <laughs> this isn't your life. This is my life. I'm I'm actually starting to see the model here because whereas right now we rely on external services to enable us to use our computers, what you're proposing is a way for us to use our computers for the services that we currently uh, rely on external right. uh, external uh, service providers uh, to provide. Right, and so you're basically you're sort of hacking Metcalfe's
1: law in a way in that you know the the I mean Metcalfe's law of course is that um, you know, the value of a network is the square of its size. And so that's a, um makes a new network like Urbit have relatively low value. But if Urbit becomes a useful way to aggregate your existing networks, then suddenly you've got the network effect of Facebook and Twitter in there. And the thing is that um, because, you know, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to tweet. And um, rather than sending that tweet directly to Twitter uh, or directly uh, to Facebook, Facebook is a status update. I'm basically going to put that. That's a tweet about my own life. I'm going to put that in my own life log in Urbit, and then Urbit is going to syndicate that to Twitter and Facebook. Um, and then when I read, basically, when I consume these feeds, that's that's going in the other direction. And the thing is that, yeah, this isn't the UI that um, that uh, you know uh, Facebook wants me to experience when I'm connecting to Facebook. But the thing is, who does Facebook shut down? You know, do they shut? Do they try to shut us down because we're letting people have general-purpose computers? That's going to look really good in the New York Times. Do they shut down the 15-year-old Bulgarian kid who wrote the the Facebook API for Urbit? Good luck uh, getting your uh, your your uh, your Bulgarian lawyer on that. Uh, there's a lot more 15-year-old Bulgarian kids where that came that guy came from. Um, and um, yeah, so it, it's it's like essentially you have. Um, you, have, you should think
2: of this really as like a thought
1: experiment. It's a thought experiment. It's not a plan. It's a thought experiment. But, you know, the, basically, it's like, you know, you have a sort of problem that information wants to be free. And um, in a world where sort of computing, it, it's like, you know, I, I used to pass this in one of our old locations. I used to pass this billboard for some uh, API service. And, um, you know, in San Francisco, is such an insane town that there are actually billboards selling B2B services to developers. Um it's completely nuts. I think this one was BrainTree or something, but it's a billboard again that's addressed to app developers and it's like with the BrainTree API, you know, you can make payments in, you know, 183 uh you know different currencies or something, which is great, but the thing is that basically uh, suppose I'm not an, an app developer and I see that billboard. It's like, well, I actually want to make payments in 183 currencies. I don't want to write an app that makes payments. I actually want to be able to do this. And it's like, well, you know, actually, you're not an app developer, so you're a second class citizen. Go to the back of the bus. And, you know, in a world where basically app developers have more power than ordinary users, like that's not and like the ordinary user is a second class citizen. Um, that is somehow that's really not consonant with any kind of 21st century values. And um, it's just something that, you know, you see as kind of unsustainable. And so that's, that's sort of the kind of the Apple II stage of this, where you're like, hey, you know, if I create a general purpose computer that basically is really good at driving APIs, I can provide a kind of service that people don't have right now. Now, that's still something for sort of geeks, for sort of advanced, you know, power users. But that's basically a stage you need to go through. You don't you can't go you can't sort of go straight to the kind of mass market, you know, consumer with a technology like this. It's got to grow and mature basically through, um, um, you know, basically power users and geeks and hobbyists. Yeah, and, you I mean, know- we,
2: We're like, we're at the Apple one stage now. We're at the Apple, just to, be clear. We're, just to be clear, we're at the Apple one
1: stage now. And basically we're like, okay, this is the Apple two stage. So does the Apple two stage kind of make sense to you? Maybe we can move on to the Mac stage uh, and, uh, or, or, or do does that need clarifying? It does not need clarifying. Excellent, was, excellent. very astutely. Planned. Excellent, excellent. So let's move on to the to the Mac stage. Um, well, so, oh, wait, No, no, go, go ahead. I mean, where, you 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 drive. You drive. You drive. Go ahead. Do you want to hear the Mac?
0: No, no, that, that was good. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's hear the Mac stage because the next question I'm going to ask is explain the 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 phrase math based operating system and uh, functional language. Yes, well, well, but let's do the Mac. Let's stage
1: do the Mac stage and then we'll get back to the uh, get back to the technology here. So, and the Mac stage basically. Um, You know, there was this um, um, we used to have a lot of trouble explaining this uh, this this Mac stage. And then um, actually, um, you know, the um, there's a service that they have in uh, China. Maybe you've heard of it. uh, WeChat.
0: Uh, Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. I've never seen such an uh, such an amazing (laughs) communist chat utility. (laughs)
1: I know. I know. There's this great video that The New York Times did, um, like really amazing production values. I don't know what they spend on this, but it basically is like WeChat explained for stupid Westerners. And, uh, you know, the whole point is that basically um, suddenly, uh, you know, China is ahead of, you know, basically Western uh, Internet technology here. And the West is, you know, trying to copy China, which is certainly the reverse of a common stereotype, um, which is kind of cool. And um, it's a really great video. And if you just if you search for WeChat on The New York Times, uh, anyone listening, uh, I would strongly advise you to do this. And and, and kind of the miracle of WeChat is that it basically takes this Western. uh, I mean, it's basically almost in a sense made the Web obsolete at a certain level because. The miracle of WeChat is, is basically as explained by the New York Times. And I've never actually, I don't know Chinese, I've never been to China, I've never actually used WeChat. So maybe to some extent, for people who know WeChat, I'm going off over like the imaginary ideal WeChat as it should be, not as it is. But, um, you know, that's, I mean, I'd rather copy the ideal than the, the platonic ideal than the. The, you the know, West
2: has been idealizing. The, the West, West has been, yes,
1: <laughs> exactly right. And so, you know, let's let's just focus on this ideal. And the ideal is basically, um, you know, sort of you have this one app that can do everything. Um, you know, and like in this video, they're like, you know, they order like a dog washing service, you know, through their app. And in a way, the way, you know, explaining the sort of the platonic ideal of, uh, you know, WeChat, I think one of the best ways to explain it is to sort of explain the inefficiency that it's removing. So like a good example of this would be, Banking. So basically, in the US, maybe there's 500 banks or something. And each one of these banks has a UI, you know, uh, development team, they all hire a bunch of JavaScript hackers, creates a lot of, uh, you know, employment for JavaScript hackers, which obviously is good if you're a JavaScript hacker. Um, and they're all writing basically web-based banking UIs. And so the thing is, you know, all banks in the U.S., I mean, they're basically regulated. They're basically branches of the Fed. They certainly provide the same basic service. So you have the same service that's being implemented 500 times over. So that's kind of an inefficiency. Then from the user's perspective, um, you know, one of the things going back to Apple, one of the th- wonderful things that Apple discovered that we've sort of totally lost on the web is this kind of great idea of look and feel standardization. So when you go from app to app, it should feel the same way. And in something like banking, you have the same service even. And, you know, the UI is completely different for all these banks. And it's like basically one of the things that is so refreshing to people about using WeChat is I don't have to switch apps. If I want to order some food from a restaurant, I'm not doing it through the restaurant's UI done by the like restaurant's JavaScript developers. I'm doing it through WeChat. If I want to bank, basically, I'm banking through WeChat. I want to switch banks. I just change the basically the back-end provider, and I don't have to learn a new UI. And people really hate learning new UIs. And so,
2: what, what in a sense?
0: It's got maps too. Actually, it's got it's got the its own version of Google Maps.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. Right. So so the way that so WeChat is a good example of this idea that basically it's possible for most of your services to just provide data and for you to sort of for there to be a single interface through which you manage all of that data and I think that we should I think that should go one step further which is that you could actually very much decide on the sort of modules that you want to use as an interface and, and but those interface components could come from individual developers like you know Apple makes my banking UI and like Adobe makes my image editing UI or whatever, right. um, but those all come together in a single interface Which is kind of an idea that we're familiar with from the desktop and I just manage data that's actually You know separate from that interface.
1: So right, right And so really the critical point in a way is that you've gone from like this web way of delivering services is basically I write the back-end service. Let's say I'm a restaurant. Okay. I I, I, I cook the food Okay, and then I hire a bunch of JavaScript developers to write, you know, an ordering UI for the food. I download this ordering UI onto the client's browser. And then this ordering UI uses some undocumented hand-coded protocol to order food. And this is sort of the UI-driven model of delivering network services. And it sort of stands in contrast to, in fact, what's an older and better model, which is I run a restaurant. It has an API for ordering food the user controls their own UI and sends standard API requests to me as a restaurant. So the result is I, as a restaurant, don't need to hire any JavaScript developers. Saves me a lot of oh, money, makes know. the food cheaper. Um, and, and I, as a user, basically get to use a standard UI. And it's more most important, it's a UI that I control. And the difference between using a UI that you control Uh, Just to elaborate on Galen's point, just the difference between using a UI that you're in control of, even if you didn't write it, I'm not saying everyone's like a UI programmer, but using a UI that you control and you decided on is sort of a vastly different situation than using a UI that someone else wrote. For one thing, a UI that you control can't show you ads because there's actually no way of verifying that it showed you ads. So the sort of the ad driven uh, model is right out. And that UI has no conflict of interest. So let's say basically you're in this world where you've gone from the UI driven model to the API driven model and you're shopping. Um, So right now, basically, when you shop, you go to a store, you go to Amazon, you go wherever. And that store um, is providing the UI and that UI is working for the store. It's not working for you.
2: You notice that it's basically always trying to sell you more stuff.
1: It's always trying to sell you more stuff and it's not trying to help you make a decision. In a world that is API driven, basically you have a personal cloud computer, you have an Urbit, and you're like, I would like to buy a Blu ray player. And you have an agent that's running on your Urbit that's like working for you and it basically wants to get you the best UI, you know, Blu ray player. At the lowest possible price, and basically, it's going to handle the ordering and the fulfillment. Maybe even him talks to Amazon, which is a great, great fulfillment company to um, to get you that thing. But Amazon's UI is crap. I right? really think
2: the shopping example is actually like not clear enough, and that and it just brings up and the main reason that or that I would call out being sort of not clear is basically like this is super speculative. Like yeah, we're like, in, we're, we're talking about, about the Mac when we're building the Apple we One. All we care about is the Apple One, <laughs> and there's this kind of like far off sort of, or, or sort of intuitive sense that, you know, this could, this, this could change that basically the way we think about um, controlling, you know, or, or interacting with outside data. Now we only use these sort of custom services, custom websites, you know, maybe that's actually not the right model. And it seems like the only way you could actually, or you could re- potentially reverse that if you, if something like Orbit were, were successful. Right. But this is like, Beyond the horizon. This is, is yes,
1: (laughs) it's super, it's super speculative, but you can see how, you know, here's this basically sort of large area of value that you're providing because what WeChat has really proven is basically, yes, I don't want to have 16 web accounts. I want to have one web account. Ideally, my browser basically becomes almost locked to my own sort of personal server in the sky. WeChat, of course, is not a general purpose computer. WeChat is just another kind of service. So as you pointed out,
2: right, so so the, the problem the the main difference here, of course, is that you own your Orbit and Tencent owns your WeChat, and the, and that uh, fact would not really fly, um, I think, with most of the people who um, are listening to this podcast. Yes.
0: <laughs> I actually, so I think of I think I can sum this up and tell me if you feel like i have got this right. So there's a spot by Marshall McLuhan, "Understanding Media: The Extensions Very of Man," brilliant. and the idea is that all of these things, be it uh, be it electricity, be it the automobile. Uh, all of these things are examples of, of media, which are essentially ways in which we have extended our own capabilities. You know, uh, it's, it's like the idea of if you're using a, uh, a smartphone, you're a cyborg, mm-hmm. right? You're right. a cybernetic organism that's linked in, it's, it's part of you. And these applications that we're using are themselves a form of media and, and thus are extensions of our own being but are owned by external forces and controlled by external forces so only by wresting control away from those external forces can we really own these uh, these technological extensions of ourselves
2: is it- well conversely like it's just a natural it's okay. a natural process like that's that's it just sort of makes sense like it, it doesn't make like uh, you would never um, like uh, have a, like have a um, prosthetic leg that like was just provided to you by Facebook. <laughs> and like, you know, you got it, it for would, free because it has ads on it. You,
1: you got it for free because it has ads on it and it occasionally walks you down to the Facebook store. And um. yeah, I mean, the thing is that, that I would say that sort of the important takeaways from this story is that basically, you know, the set of people, fortunately or unfortunately, the set of people that basically sort of care enough about digital freedom to kind of create the the critical mass for something like this is, uh, I mean, it's sort of questionable whether that's a large enough group of people. And so basically what the story has to be is that, you know, we can say to sort of the early adopters the people who really do care about digital freedom that, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, give you your freedom back and you're going to control your media. And then we can say to the other 99% of the world, people in the world, hey, we're going to offer you user experience which is much easier and much more pleasant and much more comfortable than maintaining 16 different, you know, web accounts where, you know, you're like, oh, who did Dropbox merge with today? And, you know, why, why, why are there ads in all my Word documents? And, um, you know, this feeling of... But you have to sort of solve a problem that is, you know, a problem that basically sort of the ordinary consumer who doesn't really have an ax to grind on these issues and is perfectly comfortable using Facebook. But you have to basically say, hey, we are making your life easier. We are making your life better. And you have or to have this,
2: a I mean, you at have this to have point, we, it's like we, we plan. We, we plan to. to you have
1: to have a path to basically uh, a, a path to this this nirvana. And um, The nice thing, again, about the WeChat example is that basically, certainly, I would say the average consumer of WeChat has very little interest in digital freedom. Um, And yet they would rather use WeChat than basically 67,000 different independent websites. And so there's kind of a data point. Users want this kind of Mac stage of, of, of the product.
0: Let's uh, uh let's move on from that to actually get to the technology because that's probably what most of the people listening to this are, are, are really looking looking for.
1: You might be surprised. You know, what's funny is that uh you know when I ha- when we have conversations about Urbit, uh, you know, it often turns into the um the non-technical people want to hear about the technology and the technical <laughs> people want to hear about the product. Um, <laughs>
0: and, uh, the um um well, I mean,
2: you may have a lot of non-technical people listening yes. to- No, well yeah, go, uh, yeah well ahead. so so those are the so, two questions
0: I had were and this is in a, uh were What's a math-based operating system, and what is a functional language? Uh, and the reason that I bring these up is they're, they're extremely uh, functional languages are extremely uh, are extremely topical in the Ethereum space right now. So, uh, right because of these reentrancy problems that you're
1: having, right. Um, and the, uh, I mean, I love, I, I love, uh, Vitalik, uh, you know, I'm not actually not a programming language theorist either, uh, but, uh, certainly neither is Vitalik. And, um, so in a way it's like, um, you know, you see like the specific hack that was used on the DAO and you're just like, wow, uh, yeah, uh, I could see, um, I could see how something like that might happen to you. Um, and, um, so, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's interesting because in a way, um, I haven't really, it's not, Erbit and Ethereum are completely complementary and like don't sort of, neither is a replacement for the other in any way, shape or form. You could sort of imagine trying to use Erbit to solve a um, an Ethereum-like problem. I would have to come up with sort of an equivalent of Ethereum gas for Erbit, which I'm not quite sure how to do in any case. Ethereum's fine, basically. So like, I'm not like we're certainly not competing with Ethereum, but let me talk a little bit about. Um, you gotta explain.
2: Talk about not.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, um, in a sense, basically, the problem at a certain level, um, is the same. So let's take this sort of at the the the. Um, uh, I think sort of for uh, a kind of broad um, and very general technical introduction. Okay, let's say you're redesigning computing from scratch, which is basically what we've done here. Um, Well, um, one way to think about that problem is to think about it from the network in. And so, let's say you know an example I, I like to use. Uh, I, I used to use this more than I do now because it's it's just so geeky. But um, you know we're all geeks here, so let's let's go forward with this. Let's say the uh, the Martians uh, come to you and they want to build a computing infrastructure for Mars. Uh, they've been watching Earth TV. They think this computers are cool. They've already acquired the hardware, but they're like, uh, what software should we run? And um, you could do uh, now now if you were you know really trying to be a, a scammer, you could do. There's this great trick that uh, someone in the 80s in the Netherlands, I believe, did where um, maybe it was 85 or something. He sold the source code to gnu Emacs to the KGB for like $100,000. <laughs> uh, and of course, Emacs is open source. So but the KGB, you know, goes back to Moscow and is like, we got this great, you know, Western editor. And, um, uh, you know, then the Soviet Union went into business. So we got away with that. Um but uh, um, <laughs> the, um, 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 but I mean, that's really short, you know, doing the, the Martians a, a disservice because uh, you don't, they, they don't need Linux. They don't need to be compatible with Unix. Nobody's got any Martian programs that write to the POSIX API. So, you know, what they're asking is really, how should we do this if we just started doing it now? So one way to think about that problem is again, to think of it from the network up. And so if you're designing computing from scratch, you might say, well, what is a computer really? Um, a computer is a thing that is basically a network packet transceiver. So it has some state, packets go in and packets go out. And actually, if I was like designing hardware from scratch, which is definitely not something I'm doing, you might even say, well, you know, on a like conventional computer, we have all these buses, we have all these weird connectors. You know, there's a monitor cable and a USB cable. Why not have it all be networks? Why not have it all be basically Ethernet? You plug in your um, your computer to your monitor through an Ethernet cable, perfectly viable. And so the thing is that there's a sense in which basically any computer just becomes packets in, packets out, right? And so that's, um, in a sense, basically, uh, it's a transceiver, it's a transfer function, right? And so the question is, how do you define that function? So there's sort of one sense in which you can define that function as, you know, from what I get in to what I get out. There's another sense in which you can say, well, let's say I just pull a computer out of the box. It's a new computer. It doesn't have any state at all. It has no brain. What does it think? Then you ask the question and you say, well, I can redefine the sort of functional definition of a computer as, as a function of the packets I've heard in the past. As a function of, you know, all the inputs I've had in the past, basically. What is my current state? And, um ideally in fact if you think about it you want this function to be fixed you want it to be permanently frozen and at first that makes no sense because you're like oh well i need to be able to upgrade my computer so how can its software be frozen but um actually that function can still be frozen it's just that if you want to upgrade your computer how do you do it you send it packets and so those packets have the source code to new software and um that's all sort of run at a higher level and so the idea that basically you can um have the semantics of a general-purpose computer be completely and permanently frozen, really for all time. Like, you can't change this function. Again, it's the computer's state. What's in its memory is a function of all the packets it's heard in the past, and that function never changes and never can change. Um, So sort of the only question remaining there is, what is the function? And the thing is that um, this function is, you know, just as a sort of a designer of computing systems, if you want to design anything that doesn't change, you want it to be as simple as possible. So ideally, you want to define this one function that basically defines a whole, um, every computer sold on Mars will run the same function. The function will never change. In a billion years on Mars, they'll be running exactly the same function. Um, whatever that function is, it better be pretty simple because there's, that's the only way to know that you've, um, you've gotten it right. Um, and in fact, um, a good standard for the, a good way of sort of evaluating the quality of this function is that it should fit on a t-shirt, um, you know, or if you run word count on it, um, you know, uh, like 200 words, uh, a good way of, you know, defining the information content of a function is just to take the the definition of that and um compress it which tells you sort of how many bytes of information it has um it should be less than 500 bytes right um and so uh, actually a knock which is our uh, fundamental function checks in at about 340 bytes it uh fits on a t-shirt um we, we have these t-shirts uh we should probably sell them Dude, I'd, I'd love to have one we'll
2: send you one <laughs> we'll send you one
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Dude, please um um they're beautiful t-shirts they're designed by uh galen here who has a uh, Who's really a designer? Quite, I mean, They're really quite it's nice. Just I
2: mean, it's, just, <laughs> um, it's just knock. Um, it's, yeah.
1: just, it's just knock. And so the um you know basically I um you know to sort of get into the the history of uh, of verbit, basically I um, um sort of realized that this was an interesting problem. I guess I'd um, been involved in this uh, you know giving um, use WAP wireless access protocol like old cell phones like, from yeah, like 2000 you had a flip phone with a browser in like the year 2000 oh, so oh I was- yeah absolutely
0: i remember i left it going one time and it cost 20 bucks or something <laughs>
1: sorry I, I well
0: you know what's worse is so uh, what, what what model was it uh um was it a Nokia or a- I, honestly it would have it must have been a nokia because what else it must have been a Nokia. well no it was either a nokia or a hyundai uh, it was if it was a q it was probably running the
1: browser that I wrote. Uh, if it was a Nokia, Nokia was was very recalcitrant and used their own browser. But um, <laughs> basically, I was involved to make a long story short. I was involved in this ridiculous scam. I was implicated a little bit in this ridiculous scam of WAP back in the 2000s. And, um, you know, so that we had this bubble then and the bubble popped and, uh, you know, all these chairs were worth nothing. And. I had a little bit of money left over. So I'm like, oh, I'll do my own independent PhD thesis, right? And so I was sort of thinking about this problem and basically started doing this in around 2002. And coming up with these uh, 340 bytes of NOC took me until about 2008. I'm like, okay, how do, how do you actually do this? Um, and at this point, I'm like, wow, yeah, you can build an entire, in theory, you can build an entire um, computing framework based on this function that fits on a t-shirt. Well, this is pretty cool unfortunately, um, you know, cool uh, doesn't really uh, pay the bills. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not actually some tycoon or anything. So I'm like, okay, wow, this is pretty cool. And, you know, also, it's sort of a world in which, you know, when you build something cool, the world doesn't exactly beat a path to your doorstep. Uh, You have to at least prove that it's cool. So you're like, okay, I built this fundamental interpreter sort of knock. I mean, if you're a language person, you can think of it as it's like Lisp so reduced that it's not even Lisp anymore. Then you're like, okay, well, thinking about this sort of, you know, this err function, this um, this kind of basic function, then obviously y- you can't define a programming language on a T-shirt, right? And people want to write programs. They don't want to write in what's basically a functional equivalent of, a, of machine code. So if you go back to thinking about these packets, well, you know, um, What's the f- What are the first few packets that you're going to receive? Well, you know, you have this basic function, which is sort of the functional equivalent of a CPU. Uh, the first thing you want is a programming language so you can program in that. So you sort of are you're going to send the binary, which is a compiler for a language that compiles itself to knock. You're also going to send some encryption keys, obviously, but that's a separate conversation. So, OK, that, so then you have to build a functional language. Well, what's the right way to build? a functional language that compiles itself to this, um, knock. Another way, if you're familiar with programming language theory, one way to think of knock is it's kind of a sort of a more, um, less mathematical replacement for the, uh, the lambda calculus. So then you're like, okay, how should we do functional programming? And, you know, the interesting thing, I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of the world of functional programming, but, um, you have these languages like, um, Haskell, for example, which is the, um, kind of default, um, um, You know, uh, typed functional language. And um, they have had trouble getting adoption. And sort of part of the reason they've had trouble getting adoption is that um, they basically have this sort of background in high level math. And uh, there's something called category theory. And essentially, you know, there's sort of two ways to be a Haskell programmer. Um, One way is to basically understand the math which means that you have to be someone who could basically get a math degree from a good university. Um, another way is to be like, okay, you don't understand what's going on here, just use it. Neither of those things comes really naturally to a programmer. So, you know, at the same time, there's like this realization that, okay, the right way, especially in the system, which is basically functional, the right way to program is clearly in a functional language. It doesn't have to be compatible with anything because it's a new layer on top of the whole world. Um, And so how should we do functional programming? I'm like, well, uh, really, I don't see any really good answers out there or any answers that really satisfy me. Um, The great thing about it's like when I look at sort of the existing work in this area, basically, I'm like functional programming is so important that it really can't be left to the functional programmers. I mean, I'm really an OS guy. I went to grad school in OS. So I'm like sort of approaching this sort of different field from a background in kind of a related field. And I'm like, I'm gonna build a functional language the way an OS guy builds it. And the thing is that basically there's an enormous amount of value here. It's like if you use Haskell or you use Hoon, which is our functional language, one thing you'll notice is it usually, or not usually, but very often, if your program compiles, it's going to work the first time, and that's because you have a type system that's just much more powerful than the type systems in something like uh, JavaScript. Uh, so, to make a long story short, then I'm like, okay, so you need to get from knock to a language. So between like you know 2008 and you know 2012, uh, you know I built this uh, language. Then I'm like okay, uh, great, I have a language, you know, that and 50 cents will get you a newspaper. Um, now it's like, I have to build an operating system. <laughs> um, you know, well, uh, you know, uh, how do you build a purely functional? Oper- well, this is something that I'm at least have some training yeah, so, in.
2: Like between and, then and now, it's like you've seen Apocalypse Now. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> um,
2: it's, um, so, you know, to make a long story short, basically
1: by, by 2013, I had a... Uh, a prototype of the full stack. And I'm like, well, this is actually looks like it could be a thing. Uh, You know, maybe we could go out and start a company. And sort of meanwhile, the interesting thing that's been happening sort of as I'm doing this is um, Satoshi's off inventing Bitcoin. And um, this idea that basically you can have a network in which the address space in the network functions as a sort of cryptographic asset not quite like Bitcoin, but kind of like Bitcoin, um, comes, goes from being this like wacky idea that nobody could ever possibly understand to this, like, oh, of course you're doing that like kind of idea. Um, you know, totally due to the, you know, brilliant efforts of Satoshi. Um, and so I'm like, Hey, this, this, this like has like a business model that I can explain to people because, you know, the way I explain it sort of from the cryptographic network perspective is, you know, let's say you're building, you know, the internet, right. Um, You know, you're John Postel. John Postel was funded by the U.S. government. So, uh, you know, it wasn't really an issue. But there's a sort of very natural way to build out a new network, which is to basically say we're colonizing a new continent here. We're colonizing this completely unoccupied area of four billion addresses. And the way we're going to do this is basically sell off the address space to people who want to help us colonize it. And that's how we can basically fund engineering the project. Um, and that went from a business model that like nobody had ever heard of before and was completely wild and off the charts to something that today is just stone cold, nor- stone cold normal. And, um, you know, that's, um, um, that's kind of what enables, uh, Urbit to be a thing. And that's how we could do the crowd sale that we did, uh, this summer basically. Um, so that's, I, I think that's the long uh, story of, uh, you know, orbit as a, uh, as, as a technology, but, um you know maybe 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 that leaves you with a few questions i don't
0: know <laughs> it leaves me with so many questions i don't really see how i can have them answered without watching this thing play out in uh, in the real world <laughs>
2: uh, yes that, that's, that's that's actually completely fine that's, that's actually <laughs> that's actually that's actually
1: completely fine i'm i'm I, you know i am not uh, I'm, i i'm very much at a stage where urbit is very much at a stage where we're um it's like in a sense URBIT, Urbit, while it's in its Apple One stage, is basically in the stage where sort of to believe in URBIT or to understand URBIT at this stage, you still to a certain extent have to be the sort of person who maybe could have invented it yourself given that opportunity. Um, And so it's like basically you're sort of in the, you know, you're talking to fellow dreamers and fellow people who believe that, hey, the world in 2050 is not going to be running in 1970s software. And everyone who's sort of had this realization that this 1970 software stack is not the future of humanity basically has had kind of vague ideas about building something
2: like urbit um
1: and you know we're just we're just the people that happen to actually do it <laughs> and um
2: the uh it's, sort of, it's just weird it doesn't there's no real reason to, to that to yeah that
1: no, no 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 <laughs> um but uh yeah go on I, I think that that's that's my uh that's my uh, sort of histo- historical spiel of what the technology is and uh where it came from, but uh, feel free to ask away, or if uh, that's enough for you, that's uh, that's perfectly fine.
0: Well, uh, well, it is enough, but this is this is interesting because it is a uh, a natural progression that we're seeing ourselves move through. Right? We've got this, uh, you know, with what, um, and I hate to use, I, I try to refrain from using the words decentralization and the word blockchain these days because they're so so loaded. This they've just been buzzwordified mm-hmm. into nothing now. But what we're seeing are these canonical sources of truth uh, we're seeing the removal of these mm-hmm. rent seeking and uh, and network controlling services and entities and we're beginning to see a uh, a new kind of sovereignty emerge and the idea of you know p- personal mm-hmm. sovereignty on the internet and we're trying also as a society right globally simultaneously right. we're seeing a balkanization of of nations, which you can see is positive for the individual who gets a louder voice in his uh, in his own community. But then potentially you see those individual communities being marginalized by uh, by mm-hmm. a large, you know, by the, the greater uh, the greater world. Right,
1: right. And and that's the, um, you know, the thing about uh, Urbit is that you have, you know, we're really, um, you know, someone we were talking to, you came up with this nice uh, buzzword of uh, Civilization 2.0. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that, that Urbit is inspired by actually is my, uh, experience as kind of an old, uh, neck beard, or I was a very young neck beard back in the eighties on Usenet. And, um, you know, I don't, do you know Usenet, do you know, the, the sad story of
0: Usenet, um that's the uh we're going to talk about the eternal september right yes exactly so you know usenet was this sort of wonderful <laughs>
2: if, if anyone calls themselves a neck beard and then they want to talk about <laughs> I,
1: don't a, I don't actually have a i don't actually have a beard on my neck or otherwise uh you know uh and uh you know i look like i'm in my 30s although i'm not um but um the um, um you know usenet was as i discovered it as a teenager was this fantastic alternate civilization and um you know, maybe it's heyday. It had 100,000, 200,000, you know, a few hundred thousand people on it. Um, it was amazing because it was, it had no central government. It sort of had this kind of loose governing authority of like various sysadmins,
2: but there was also no misbehavior on it. Um, I think, like, I think almost everyone who is concerned with these kinds of problems experienced something like this on the web. It, it, at, least 10 years ago. It was still happening, I think, 10 years ago to some degree, that you had these like loosely organized communities who were still small enough that they could govern themselves. And there was this sort of magical quality to it. And since we've also seen things like the Eternal of September kind of happen over and over again, there's this lingering question of, well, could you you institutionalize this in a way that's sustainable? Or could you actually fix these problems, even maybe in a technical way um, that would, um, you know, kind of make it possible to preserve these social structures that were so fantastic. Sure.
1: I mean, it's sort of like we're living in the ruins of Rome, right? And, you know, you have these barbarian kingdoms of Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And, you know, you're just like, you know, these uh, barbaric kings, you know, sort of cover themselves with gold and they think of themselves as like the epitome of civilization. And it's like, well, yeah, I remember Cicero and Cato and Caesar. And you guys don't have anything on Cicero and Cato and Caesar. and And they're just like, yeah, but our kingdom is standing and your kingdom is in ruins. Um, Your republic is in ruins. And it's like, can we? (laughs) um, um, And this is true. This is a good point. It's like, you can't basically, if, if you don't realize why Rome fell, you can't recreate Rome. Right. And so, you know, one of the sort of the crucial kind of features of Urbit when it comes to saying, how do you recreate Rome? Is to say, well, you know, why did Rome fall? Or and you can even ask, why did Rome? Why did Usenet sort of exist at all? And one of the basic reasons why Usenet existed and worked was that when you were, you know, in like 1988, let's say, uh, when I first started using it, if you wanted a Usenet account, like uh, you had to work at a technology company or be a university student, and there was no way of getting a second second account. Like if you misused your access to Usenet your local system, sysadmin, sysadmin could get an email and he would just cut you off and you would be gone. And that was his decision or her decision. And um, like that was a completely decentralized decision. It wasn't like some mysterious person in a Twitter boardroom was making that decision. They would be like, no, look, you sent commercial email to a news group, you know, like you're done, you can't do that. Um, And there was no spam. And the thing is what created that sort of sense of civilization um, was, you know, yes, you had a very high quality population of users and the users were responsible basically because they couldn't create infinite identities. And as soon as people basically be able to, you know, became able to create infinite unlimited identities, yeah, you spam from an email address and you create a new email address. How many email addresses are there? An infinite number. And one of the things about basically urbit is that if you say, well, we're going to make create a system where... Your network address and your name are the same thing. It's like one layer. Instead of having DNS on top of IP, you have, you know, your name is basically a kind of pronounceable version of an IP address in a sense. And yeah, you paid money for that. You paid maybe 10 bucks for that.
2: Even if someone gave it to you, you
1: even if if someone gave it, you can't just get another one, like, you know, for free. You can't just get a hundred thousand, a million for free. And that basically changes the dynamics of the spam war because it creates an environment where when identities are no longer disposable, abusing the network has a cost. So let's say you're a spammer, you know, and you're sending out spam from an urbit on the urbit network. And um, there's a simple financial calculation there. You know, if your address costs you 10 bucks and your address gets zapped, Basically, if you send spam, your spam had better make you ten bucks. Well, that's a very high bar for a spammer. Um, and so, I think y- the
2: important thing about this idea is that it actually reflects the way that sort of civil society works, right? When you do something in in you know in real life, like that action is usually attributable to you in some in some way, right? People know who you are within the community, and that's something that's sort of somehow disappeared on the web over the last. 30, 20, 30 years. Um, but it's, that's not actually a good thing. And it's been reinvented by, you know, Facebook has solved this problem by requiring you to use your real name and
1: making it, you know, I mean, there are still bots on Facebook, of course, but you know, they, they control that, but they tie it to your real identity, which is something a lot of people really don't want. And so basically Facebook has in, within its walled garden has created this sense of scarcity, but, um, you know, it's not a decentralized system. And Facebook definitely feels like the sort of creepy Singapore kind of community. And like, there's no sense of like, decentralized authority or decentralized responsibility in Facebook, right. And so it's like, if you're going to create a new civilization, uh, you know, a new network, which is, you know, one thing I like to, to say is that basically, um, you know, Facebook is you know, a social network, but it's a network like in the NBA sense. It's not a network in the like network sense. It's a social mainframe, basically. And if you're creating and the reason that Facebook exists is basically that the Internet itself, which is a network, is has become an antisocial network. And so if you're basically trying to create a network which is sort of genuinely social, which is still a network, basically you you have to solve this problem. I mean. You know, you won't get any spam on your network until it reaches a certain scale. And then once it reaches a certain scale, it either collapses due to abusers um, or it doesn't. And, you know, if you're designing something to be Civilization 2.0, yeah, you're designing it to be something that doesn't collapse when it scales due to, you know, the invasion of the Huns or whatever, um, because the Huns are out there and they will come. Um, and, we're,
2: we're, Urbit is a Hun-friendly network.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, um So, yeah, that's that's basically that's sort of the kind of the responsibility that you take on your head when you try to design kind of a new civilization from top to bottom like this. You're like, yeah, okay, you know, in the Apple one stage, like, you know, I'm not worried about the Huns and the Vandals. But, um, yeah, you know, you have to think in those terms. And um, and it's a problem that just can't really be. It's like solving that problem in a centralized way is sort of relatively easy but solving it on a real network is is just like you have to again design for that and it's like the set of people that have tried to sort of fix that retroactively on the network that we have it's just like good luck with that
0: galen curtis this has been an absolute joy where can people find out more about urbit they can go to urbit.org that's the best place yeah
1: and uh yes and email send us an email join the network join Join the network talk on our our our, you know urbit hosts its own chat right? So. you can, you can use, you can go on Erbit chat from urbit.org or you can install an Erbit and do it really the right way. Um, and uh, we love you either way to do it. Um, but come come see us on urbit.org. You yeah. are BIT. Great
2: questions, man. Thanks. Great
1: questions, man. A lot of, a lot of fun. Talk. Yeah.
0: Look forward to uh, seeing how all this develops. Take it easy, guys. All right. All right. Take care. This has been the Ether Review. Visit EtherReview.info for more episodes, email, contact at EtherReview.info, or follow us on Twitter, at EtherReview.